Psalm 119. Let's jump in. We had this uh, political conversation with some of the bros on Thursday morning. It went well. It was good. It was good to hear a difference of opinion. I love that. I love that in this church we are not unified around political ideologies or political philosophy, but we are unified around the new polis, by the way. That's why early Christians were put to death, um, not because of their religious persuasion, but because they were enemies of the state. They committed treason. They refused to bow the knee to Caesar. You could have whatever little mini-religion you wanted, as long as you also bowed the knee to Caesar, and they refused. But the whole political conversation on Thursday got me watching a few extra clips, paying attention to some of the debates and things that I might normally pay a little bit of attention attention to, but this time more so. And you know, I, I couldn't help but just feel, and I know a lot of us feel this, just sort of frustrated <laughs> with everything in that realm this time around. What happens, right? You either go from no one really represents me, which is true, to just having your your youthful idealism dashed upon the rocks of uh, you know will to power and career politicians and house of cards reality show version. It always seems like a lesser of evils. It always seems like, uh, you know, one-liners and sound bites and chasing after money. We need direction. We need direction because even the greatest and the smartest men and women in this country cannot ultimately provide us what we need, universal, absolute truths to guide us, to direct us, to be a foundation for us, an anchor for our souls. We don't have that kind of an anchor. We will just fall back into uh, the the same thing as everyone else. We do it all the time. In fact, we are just as guilty as looking for things that are shiny, being drawn to power, being drawn to promises. We love Saul more than David, don't we? (laughs) Saul was good-looking. He was tall. He seemed like a leader. He looked leaderish. He looked powerful. He carried himself with the perception of power. And yet it was just a little shepherd boy with a sling and a stone that God used. We live in an upside-down kingdom. These standards, these norms are desperately needed in this 21st century, especially as we look back to the 20th century. I was watching a little clip recently from an apologist, a defender of the faith named Ravi Zacharias. Some of you guys really like Ravi. He's, he's solid. You can find a great wealth of clips online. And he was answering someone's question about evil and morality. And, you know, the kid was basically saying, well, yeah, don't we just have kind of an intuition about what's good? I mean, people are just kind of good, aren't they? And it's so funny because he's this, this old guy. This old, he's kind of got that grandpa authority about him. And he just walks around and says, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. He's on stage. You know, this poor kid at the mic is like, why is he going, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, and pacing back and forth. Ravi says, you know, the 20th century per capita, it was the bloodiest century in recorded human history. And between uh, communist Russia and, and China, I mean, we're talking to the tune of up to 140 million people that were killed. If that number sounds too big for you, then please go and and fact check it. I mean, let's just do a plus or minus here of, you know, 20 million. But these are just two countries. Makes the Holocaust look tame, and the Holocaust happened in the 20th century. So much intelligence, so much technology, 
Yet the problems of man's heart remain the same. We need guidance. We need light. We need the gospel. And that's why we're in this series, Psalms, Gospel Rhythms. We need to regularly return to the truth voice of the living God, the God who created us, saves us, sustains us, and brings us to the end. We need the Psalms. There's five books in the Psalms, right? You've got a prologue, Psalm 1 and 2. You have an epilogue, Psalm 146 through 50. The prologue says this is a book about wisdom and praise. Wisdom and praise. Follow the path of life. Obey the word of the Lord. Then you have five books of Psalms, and it ends with this great collection of five Psalms. 146 through 150, that's kind of this doxological crescendo, this erupting praise. In between, you have five books. Now, why five books? It's very interesting. They say that the Psalms is like a mini Torah, right? And the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Psalms is a mini Torah. It's to instruct God's people in how they should live, but always in the context of promise. It's always by faith alone, but of course, by faith it is never alone. Instruction and the promise of the Messiah. It's all over the Psalms. And what do you have in the Psalms? You begin with more Psalms of lament. But they grow as the Psalms do their work of unearthing what's really inside of you and untangling the darkness of our hearts. I mean, what a great psychologist, the Psalms. As the Psalms work on our souls, they move from lament to more praise. We need these regular rhythms. We need to be hearing the voice of God. We need Psalm 119. We need a word that is a lamp unto our feet. We need it. We need help to know what our purpose is in this world. So let's read some excerpts from Psalm 119. You may know it is the longest psalm in the Psalter. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read some selections. We're going to begin in verse 17 because we used the first 16 verses in our call and confession. And I'm really only going to read a handful of verses here, but I want you to get the flavor of Psalm 119. So here, verse 7, I'm actually not even going to read off what verses I'm reading. So just, just listen, because you're not going to know where we are. So just listen. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. 
Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. All your commandments are sure. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Even though I am severely afflicted, give me life, O Lord, according to your word. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope only in your word. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Wow. Pray that. That's 133. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. Look on my affliction and deliver me. Plead my cause and redeem me. Princes may persecute me, even without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. And the last verse, I have gone astray like a lost sheep, so seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for not being silent. Thank you for not just creating us and leaving us with only the light of nature and only our own understanding and only our deepest intuitions and emotions. And these things are all wonderful. They are important all of that generally reveals you. We are held accountable to it, Romans 1. We cannot escape this general revelation. It is everywhere, from the earth beneath to the complexity of a single cell to the stars above and gravitational waves. And yet none of those things can bring us to a saving knowledge of who you are according to your promises, your statutes, your commandments, your word. So thankful. Thankful we are, Lord, that you have revealed yourself in this special way. You have spoken. You are not an impersonal force in the universe. You are not the force out there, merely buzzing about, capricious, empowering what you will and not what you won't. You are not arbitrary. You are not changing. You are not like a shifting shadow. You are secure. You have shown us. You are absolute and true. You have told us who you are. You have given us your word. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for it. Thank you for this word we hear, this word we preach, and soon enough this word we will feast on at your table. Be with us now as we study Psalm 119. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. A couple points to make tonight. First, we have to get into God's word. I'm as convicted as you are. Secondly, there are many but few voices, as it were, in the pantheon. Voices in the pantheon. And third, the way of blessing. First, we have to get into God's word. Honest question, Pastor Greg, to myself, mirror, mirror on the wall, and to the rest of you, how, how much time do we really spend with God? 
Imagine if we treated our wives and our friends, our, our best friends, our homies and the BFFs, like we treat God, the personal living God, relationally. Do we listen to him? Are we internalizing his voice? You ever had a conversation with somebody that just loves you and cares about you and was right there at the right time with the right conversation and you left just for a moment feeling changed? Because you heard what they had to say and you, you internalized it. And you just, you left feeling, I mean, you were here and then you left and you were here. You, you'd been lifted up, you'd been edified, built up, encouraged. This is how God speaks to us, his children, and yet we're, we're so infrequent to even allow him to be with us, to meet with us, to have that deep personal relationship with us. Here's the flip side of the coin. Because one way to ask the question is, how much time do you spend with God? The other way is, how's your life going? Stressed? I'm not. Ever. Tired? We're so tired, bro. We're so tired all the time. We're so... What's that B word? Busy? It's true. We have doubts. We have fears. We fear that God is real. We doubt that he loves us if he is real. And we doubt often that his love is ongoing for us, even if we believed he maybe loved us once. But the question is, what, who are you with? Who are you spending time with? Because if you're spending time with God, listening to what he says, then so many of those doubts, they, they don't just go off into thin air, but they are at least met personally by a God who speaks to, to meet you in those things, to help you. We need a lamp. A lamp unto our feet. And Alistair Begg, I can't remember if he's Scottish or Irish, but he's got an awesome accent. He's a pastor. Scottish? Yeah. Hallelujah. He says it this way. It is impossible for us to think wholesomely, by which Scottish means rightly. It is impossible for us to think rightly, unless we are thinking biblically. We need a Christian, a robust Christian worldview that understands who we are, our place in the world. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. But it is difficult, if not impossible, for us to think biblically unless we're actually studying our Bibles. Amen. Your path needs light. My path needs light. Light. And the thing about God's word, right, because we come to God like you might roll up on, you know, a big padded Robin Williams if you were to go to Disney World and he were dressed as the genie from Aladdin. We come to God like you just want to rub the lamp, bro. You know, here I am. Here's my laundry list. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I need to do. God doesn't give you a floodlight. It's a lamp. You know, even in the ancient Near East, you're like, well, that's all they had was lamps back then. Actually, not really. There were aliens. No, that's not true. Okay. They may not have had floodlights, but they certainly had a way to get more light than a small lamp. But we're told that the word is a lamp unto our feet. We are to walk with God one step at a time. It's not a collection of 40 torches. Instead, it's a lamp for each step of the way. Each step, God is saying to us, trust me, I love you, I am faithful. We need light, and we need a bright light. That is why Psalm 119 is so long. It's ridiculous, actually. It was ridiculous to the original hearers. Can you imagine the choir master standing before the throng to say, open your hymn books, please, to Psalm 119. And all the kids were like, oh, Lord, please no. Like, it's a 40-minute song. You know, I mean, it's, it is meant to be 
hyperbole. It's meant to be an exaggeration. Why is it so long? Why 176 verses? Because meditating on God's word, his law, his statutes, that's everything. That's not one little thing. That's everything for, for the believer, for the one who's in Christ, for the one who wants to know, what do I do? Show me the way. It's for the morning. It's for the evening. It's for all of life. Now, it's interesting because this psalm is what's called an acrostic. I wouldn't know this word if I hadn't studied some of this Hebrew poetry stuff, but an acrostic is basically a poem where it could be every verse, but in this case it's every stanza, there are 22, begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so it's an acrostic. There's 22 stanzas, and they're each eight lines. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because as you were listening to the reading, you might have heard a whole bunch of words that contain a very similar, let's call it semantic range. They are analogous. They have a very similar meaning across a spectrum. Promises, laws, statutes, commandments, precepts, promises, word. It's most likely that each of these stanzas has eight lines to draw our attention to these eight words. And it's as if the psalmist is kind of putting this concept of the word in a blender and swirling it around to create something even more beautiful, bright light. These are the things we need from God that he might speak to us. A path, a lamp and a path, blessing. We're told in the Psalms that to obey God at his word is the only way to fully live, to truly and fully flourish. Now there are two dangers here, right? One is legalism. But I hate to say it, guys, I'm pretty good at not being legalistic. I think our generation is generally pretty good at that. We're pretty good with like, oh yeah, we know we're not saved by works. But there, there's a danger on the other side of the pendulum too, for those of you who are Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian here tonight, then th this doesn't apply, but at least listen. The danger over here is called, it's called antinomianism, namos, law, against the law. So one thing over here is the law saves me. The other one over here is I got my little grace credit card, Chase Manhattan, Grace Manhattan. I just do whatever I want because God loves me. I'm saved. He's faithful, covenant, all the things we talk about. God has saved me. I'll do whatever I want. Well, that, you know what? If we stand before the Lord someday, hey, I was hidden with Christ. Where are you? I see that you went to church. I see that you said a lot of things, but, but your actions never, never seemed to express the things that you said. Yeah, but I believed. Yeah, but if you believed, you would have borne fruit. I mean, it's Jesus who curses the fig tree. He's like the king of grace, right? Nobody's more gracious than that guy. I just read this morning in Luke 7, how the prostitute comes and falls at his feet and anoints his hair with oil and tears before the religious people. The religious people are scandalized. And he says, this prostitute, she is forgiven much because she loved much. He's the king of grace. And yet if, if, the grace of God has come to us. Then we must strive to bear fruit. But here's the thing. We want to. We don't obey God because we have to to earn his favor. But having been met by his favor in Christ, we want to obey him. And I'm not great at it. We all need to get better at it, church. You, me, and everybody. Because there are things that we entertain that we escape into. I don't really want to say what any of my are publicly right now. <laughs> but, man... Come talk to me if you want to know. I mean, there are things that we do escape into that we know. You know what? 
Maybe this isn't like sin, but is it a trajectory that is leading us to Jesus? Or is it really just kind of leading us more into justifying ourselves? We need a path. We need to be under the full counsel of God. Two reasons, his promises and his purpose. His promises, you are loved as you are, but you are going toward glory. You are loved as you are, but God is taking you somewhere. He is conforming you to the image of Christ. He is molding you to look more like Jesus, to love the Father and to love your neighbor. The law and these other seven words, so these eight words that are used to describe this thing, they aren't mere rules, but they're the entire storyline of the, the Torah, of these first five books of Moses. Read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Actually, better yet, go to the Bible Project website and watch there. I believe it's like seven or nine videos. They're five minutes each. I should just close and pray right now. I mean, go, just everybody, YouTube it right now. Not really, but seriously, the Bible Project. It is amazing. That's the storyline of the Torah, God's promises for his people. But the way that we appropriate those promises and the way that those promises are empowered within us, the way that God proves that he is a covenant keeper to us and that we are sealed in his blood is in the way that we now delight in his law. These things are not opposed. God is speaking and saving and then sending he, those who he has spoken to to obey him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ said these words, and I said them to Violet the other night, my blessed three-year-old. If you love me, you will obey what I command. She's getting out of bed. She always gets out of bed. I used to do it, but I'm not three anymore, so I forgot. Right, we're not going to like bust her. It's not the end of the world, but daddy, I'm sorry, daddy, I'm sorry. Well, after 92 daddy, I'm sorry, you're like, are you really? How sorry are you? Please tell me of your sorrows. And I felt a little weird saying it, but I said, sweetheart, you know, I'm sorry, Daddy, I love you. I'm sorry, Daddy, I love you. I believe that you love me, and I love you too. It would be very unloving of me to not help correct you from this wayward path onto a path of life. So let me just tell you, if you love me, then do what I'm asking you to do. It's for your good. You need to go to sleep right now. Trust me. She needed to. That's how it is with the Lord. We are set apart by his promises unto his purposes. His purpose for you is not just that you would be happy. I feel entitled. I want comfort. I want control. I want an easy life without much sickness and a lot of money on a boat. Can't they do like rich pastors of Instagram or something like that? Like we're all like, yeah. No. I mean, honestly, but in my heart though, I'm like, you know, just, can I just have a good, fun, pretty easy, happy life? Just one picture after another to post online and just show everybody, like, things are pretty darn good. We were never promised any of that. God doesn't want your happiness ultimately, but your holiness in your heart. He doesn't get your holiness in your heart by merely just giving you happiness all the time. Just like you don't grow up a good, loving, strong child by giving them nothing but gummy bears and free reign. Of course it's grace. From A to Z, it's grace all the way down, but grace is transformative, don't you understand? It's not cheap grace. The psalmist doesn't know cheap grace. He says, your rules are good. Chosen, loved, then guided. Voices in the pantheon. 
God speaks, and I think here it's, it's good as we talk about legalism and antinomianism. It's good to step out even of those sort of Christian categories and compare these things to the voices of other gods in the world. Because this is the sin of Adam and Eve. The sin of Adam and Eve is, I can be my own God. I can make my own way. I, I went last night with some folks to go see a, like a play presentation of C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. So good. Sorry about that. So, so, so good. If you haven't read the screen tape letters, which confession I had. And it's interesting because the, uh, the demon who talks of God as the enemy and Satan as our good father below, the demon makes this comment. He says, the enemy has to have another motive. We know it. It cannot be merely that he just loves those people. It can't be. It can't be that he just cares about them and truly loves them. And is willing to die for them and sacrifice himself for them. There must be something else going on. That God, that enemy, he must have something else in mind. There must be another motive. Something of power. Something of prestige. Something of pleasure. Some other motive. And of course, if you're in the audience, you get it. That's the point. There isn't one. All the other voices in the pantheon, all the other major world religions, and I say this with great humility, and yet with clarity, they all, at the end of the day, teach something along these lines. A works principle. You can work yourself to a level of righteousness, to either be loved by God, to appease God, or in some instances, perhaps, to become God and then have your own planet and populate it with spirit babies. These voices lie, though, don't they? Because whenever we try to work ourselves up to God, whenever we try works righteousness, what happens? It never satisfies the psalmist says, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes. Why? Their cunning is in vain. Our cunning is in vain. Trying to think of any other way to get to God except for Christ is in vain. It always lends in disaster. So what happens? You people are like, I'm so religious and that didn't work. Then I'm going to go over here to pleasure and that doesn't work. There's never enough pleasure, not enough money, not enough any of these things. Sin never leads you where it promises you. Sin never leads you where it promises and I think it's important for us to know as Christians that there is real persecution against these truths. I know it's not the same as those Christians in the Middle East who are facing a level of persecution that we cannot even dream of. Okay, persecution is one word, but there is an elongated meaning. There's a spectrum of persecution. And if you go out into the world nowadays, even if you say it as sweetly and kindly and winsomely and humbly and every other lee as you possibly can, if you say Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through the work he has finished. He's the second Adam. You can't keep the law. You can't work to God. He's the second Adam. You must fall at his feet and beg of him to save you, and he will save you because he's good. You say that in the world, and you are a foolish bigot, or worse. And the Twitter sphere will destroy you. A saving word is needed. We need to have more confidence, a deeper anchor, and a better word than all of those opposing voices. And in our generation, I, I had a, a friend actually from this church ask me, how do you guys get young people to come to church? How do you, how do you get like 20-somethings? It's not because we're, we're special, but my response to him very carefully was just to say, look, man, unless 
what Jesus has said, unless what God says comes to bear on all of our lives, not just when we're in church, but when we're struggling to be a parent or a wife or a husband or a friend or a daughter or a son or work is really frustrating or someone in our, or what, unless what God has said comes to bear on all of that, unless God matters on our days off and our days on and everything in between, why? Why would anyone go to church? We don't have, our, our generation doesn't feel a sense of duty about it. You're not just going because your parents go. You don't need the networking. You have the Facebook. Now, you're LinkedIn, you know. You, no one thinks church is the good country club. Forget that. Hashtag Sunday fun day, dude. I'm going to go down to TMI and chill with the neighbors, watch some football. Church merch. Unless Jesus is real in every single aspect of our lives. Unless his word is inerrant and infallible and clear and possesses by the power of the Holy Spirit real power in it for our lives. For the small and the big. And it does. And so now we come to the way of blessing. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can we keep our way pure? How can we not sin? Are any of you like me? And Scott said this recently, and I loved it. He goes, I still struggle with the same stuff I did in middle school. <laughs> in some ways, right? Fear, fear of others, people-pleasing, shame, lust, Wanting power. It's just like middle school is kind of writ large and people beat each other up. But now it's just all very subtle. All very just tucked away and polished. But not different. This is a psalm of wisdom for us because the world in some ways is madness. But not because it is madness, but because we are in it and we sin. As they say, as I've heard a few of my young mom friends say recently, the struggle is real. How shall we live then? Three things. How shall we walk? We need to walk in biblical realism. In your faithfulness, you afflicted me. Dude, pray on that for a minute. If you have my Jesus is my homeboy, boyfriend, thing of Jesus in your mind, where he's like this like super good-looking blonde dude, Fabio, like kisses babies and pets sheep and just loves everybody. If that's what you think about Jesus, then think about this for a second. In your faithfulness, you afflicted me. Suffering, the temptation, the trial, the valley, the shadow of death, that's to bring you closer to Jesus. It's to show you more of who you are and what you need. Him. That's how we should walk. Humbly. Realizing that he is faithful. But he will discipline those that he loves. He will discipline and disciple, same word, his children. So how should we fellowship? Well, if we can be honest, if we have the word of God, if we have Psalm 119, then we can be honest. We can deeply live life on life together. We can fellowship. We can be yoke fellows. We can covenant together and expect messiness. We can expect relationships to be challenging because we're challenging. And so we can put on the full armor of God that does what? What does the armor of God do? It readies you for gospel rhythms. Confess, repent, receive, and then act. It readies, you, it readies you for the ongoing cyclical work of forgiveness, seeking and giving in a community to love God and to love your neighbors as yourself. How should we go on mission? How should we be on mission in our neighborhoods? Among our friends and family, our neighbors, people we love and care about. 
We don't want to be that. You don't want to be that weird guy or gal. But at the same time, we need to ask the Lord for mercy and, and boldness, real opportunities to share the gospel. How should we be on mission? Well, first I'll say this. No one cares what you know until they know what you care. No one cares what you know until they know that you care. The word of God and the deeds of God are always together. They're always together. Coming in and through and by the power of the grace of God, together. We must love in word and in deed. We don't go out with this magical, we don't have a saying, a magical word saying. Some fancy rhetoric to persuade, some argument. Oh, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have by all means. But in gentleness and respect, expect it to be received as Paul was at Mars Hill on Acts 17. Most people thought this guy is a crackpot. A few said, we'll hear you again. And a very small number said, I believe on the promises of the name of Jesus, the Messiah. No one will care what you know until they know and see that you care. You must have humble words that come from the mouth of one who washes feet. The king did not come to serve, excuse me, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so here's the challenge, church. Go find dirty feet. Go find dirty feet around you, in your neighborhood, at your job. Go find the dirty feet and then scandalize the, the other voices in the pantheon, the other ones claiming to be God. Scandalize those voices by instead of puffing up your chest in power, dropping to your knees weakness. Scandalize the other voices by kneeling. Go find dirty feet. Go kneel. Go wash those feet. And second, obey God. Again, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. We need to feel the weight of that because God won't be mocked and he's not stupid. We will stand before him one day and give account for every word, for every thought. God help us for every action done and the ones left undone. And our only hope is that we're found in Jesus. And we're only found in Jesus by faith, by believing alone. But then if you believe that, then may it well up within us this same delight, this same joy, this same profuse, ridiculous, absurd, hyperbolic 176 verses I cannot help but speak about what I've seen and heard. I can't even shut up about it. Love and delight in the commands and the guidance and the way of God. So even as we cling to the word of Christ, I love you, we act on the word of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us.